0: That's life, that's
1: life.
2: that's what all the people say, you're riding high This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Frank Sinatra, his recording of That's Life, and we're going to spend an hour on the life of Frank Sinatra, back on top in June, born this day in history. And what a life it was. He was an American original. Jazz, traditional pop, blues, it was all there. Singer, songwriter, actor, producer, director. He was one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. And one of the best-selling music artists of all time. 1,400 recordings. 31 gold, 9 platinum, 3 double platinum, and 1 triple platinum album. He sold more than 150 million records worldwide and appeared in 60 movies. And we're going to spend the next 60 minutes, my goodness, we could spend the next two hours talking about the one and only Francis Albert Sinatra.
3: I can't
0: deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pile
2: The road leading up to Frank's birth was not paved with yellow bricks. On February 14th, 1914... Dolly and Marty eloped to Jersey City as Dolly's parents refused to host a wedding and did not approve of Marty. He was illiterate, inferior at boxing, and was Sicilian, whereas Dolly's family were from Genoa in northern Italy, the right side of the Italian tracks. The couple eventually moved to Hoboken, New Jersey. My mom and dad grew up minutes away in West New York, New Jersey. Sinatra was given up for dead at birth. The delivery of the 13-pound baby in his parents' New Jersey kitchen on this day in 1915 was traumatic. When he finally emerged, there were no signs of life, so the doctor put him to one side to attend to his mother, Dolly. It was only when the child's grandmother picked up the baby, ran cold water over him, and slapped his back that he started to breathe. This was how... Frank Sinatra's life began. Frank shared this story while speaking at Yale in 1986. As you will hear, he is still filled with appreciation.
3: I was born in 1915 on December 12th, and I weighed uh, 12 and three-quarter pounds, and when I was removed from her womb by a midwife, there was a problem. I didn't want to come out of there. <laughs> And uh, they finally, they sent up a flare for a doctor. And upon removing me, I was uh, pretty well damaged at my left side of my neck and ear and face. And my grandmother, uh, who had more sense than anybody in the room, as far as I'm concerned, because she, <laughs> she knew what to do with me. And she stuck me under the ice cold water in a, in a, in a cold water flat and apparently uh, got some blood moving around, whacked me around a little bit. And uh, I have blessed that day, that moment, in her honor ever since.
2: When Sinatra's mother was a child, her pretty face earned her the nickname Dolly, energetic and driven. Biographers believe that she was the dominant factor in the development of her son's personality traits and extraordinary self-confidence. Here's Frank again.
3: I was the only child, yeah. and, and she was tough on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was very strict with me. My yeah, was always strict. She's told me to stay away from the railroad tracks because a kid one one time, one day, a kid lost an arm. About three years later, another guy, a little guy, lost his leg. And uh, if she found out that the, I was down there in the railroad tracks, she'd whack me around out of fear, out mm-hmm. of fear. I think the first thing that I was ever conscious of was a drive. That she had all the time. Her constant seeking, there was to do better. To constantly
2: do better. Do better. When Sinatra was young, being an Italian American was being the object of bigotry. You were part of a minority group, one that was stereotyped as being either comical or absurd the organ grinder with the monkey, or the dangerous and threatening type, the guy with the Tommy gun. And Sinatra, growing up in Hoboken, knew that guy with the Tommy gun was real. In those days, there were sayings. In order to be an attorney or an accountant, you had to be a Jew. In order to be a singer, you had to be an Italian. In order to be a prize fighter, well, you had to be Irish. Which is why Frank's father took the name Marty O'Brien. because Italians were not welcomed in the fight game. Furthermore, Italians were considered lower than the Irish in Hoboken. Marty broke his wrist after 30 professional fights, but his well-connected wife Dolly got him work as a fireman, while still a captain in the fire department, Marty and Dolly opened a tavern during the Prohibition era called, what else, Marty O'Brien's. In 1920, when prohibition of alcohol became law in the United States, Dolly and Marty were allowed to operate openly by local officials who refused to enforce the law. It was in this bar where Frank saw his future. Here's Sinatra.
3: They had in the bar a piano with a, with a roll in it. They'd put, they put a nickel in it and would play the songs. And uh, occasionally one of the men in the bar would pick me up and put me up in the piano and I'd sing with a roll. And it was a horrendous voice. Terrible. I mean, it was like a siren. You know, honest and truly, I'm in love with you. Way up there like that. It's a wonder I ever got anywhere. Starting that way is what kills me. So one day I got a nickel or a dime, whatever it was, and I said, this is the racket. This is what you got to be doing.
2: This is what you got to be doing. And when we come back, you're going to hear more about this extraordinary life, the many contours, detours, ups and downs, because it was not all up. My goodness, there were probably more downs, and you won't believe them, and he always came back. And always, always, there was that, well, there was that loneliness. And we're going to dig into that loneliness under my when we come back. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American I've Stories for the hour. The life of Frank Sinatra.
0: Of me, so deep in my heart that's your real. so, not to give in, I've said to myself this affair, come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Can use some exotic booze. There's a bar in Far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away.
2: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and for the hour we're talking about the life of Frank Sinatra and we left off at that bar, his dad's bar and it turns out Frank was not only attracted to acting but all of the performance arts.
3: I, I had the About six movie theaters, really one mile square. And every time I saw somebody, I wanted to be them. I wanted to be a a ventriloquist. Then I saw jugglers and all that kind of stuff. But I was still thinking about singing. I never lost that thing about singing back here. And um, I went to see performers. I mean, not anybody famous until I saw Bing.
2: Until he saw Bing, and that's Bing Crosby, of course. And Crosby was the first great pop singer in America and the first white singer to completely internalize the innovations of jazz, which he got directly from the great Louis Armstrong. Sinatra, who idolized Bing, decided to become a singer. He said, quote, That's exactly what I want to do. I want to be like that. Here's a very young Frank, sounding more like Bing than what we've come to know as old blue eyes. But one thing's indisputable. He had immeasurable potential, and his peers noticed.
0: I like New York
2: in June.
0: How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I started singing more in
3: school with the uh, dancers on Friday nights. Every other Friday night, we had to dance in the gymnasium. People would say to me, hey, you're pretty good. And that began to register in my head.
2: Frank's mom took notice, too, although she was not so receptive.
4: Well, I first discovered it when he didn't want to go to school anymore, outside of uh, just going into these glee clubs all the time. Uh How
3: old was he at the time?
4: At the time, he was about 16. Uh And uh, naturally, the principal sent for me and said he was just taking up space.
2: Taking up space, well, Frank decided to drop out of high school, and here's Frank on the resulting family crisis.
3: Oh, it was disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. My dad, you know, who never had too much of a formal education, was terribly disappointed. He he just couldn't understand it. I pleaded with him I said you got to give me a chance to 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 work on what I want to do and he said uh, something about uh, your chance it's a chance he said 10 years from now he said you'll still be looking for chance you'll be a bum he said
2: you'll be a bum he said by the way how many dads have said said that to their kids and it didn't work out it was 1936 and Frank's singing career was going nowhere his father's bum prophecy was beginning to become a reality here's frank on his father's response
3: he at this particular morning said to me uh, uh why don't you just get out of the house and go out on your own is really what he said you know, get out and uh i think the egg was stuck in here for about 20 <laughs> minutes i couldn't swallow it or get rid of it anyway my mother of course was nearly in tears and uh But but we agreed that it might be a good thing, and then I packed up a small case that I had, and I came to New York.
2: As a young man in New Jersey, New York might as well have been Oz. And this is hard to understand, folks. I know that part of New Jersey. And it's right there on the Hudson River, directly across from Manhattan. I mean, the Empire State Building, you can see from the piers and docks of Hoboken. But these kids, these working-class kids, didn't think that was their city. The magic city that he looked at from just a few thousand feet across the way just wasn't his home. But Frank's move to the Big Apple offered nothing but dead ends, so the prodigal son attempted to move back home with his parents. How did his father respond? Well, here's Frank.
3: About that point was the Christmas that came that I went home, and I thought my old man was on 24-hour shift, but I had the day screwed up. He was off 24 hours, and he was at home. And I brought two presents over to leave them there, because he didn't speak to me for a long time. He didn't talk to me. And uh, he met me at the door. And, uh, of course, it was a great homecoming. He started to cry, and I was teary, and it was just marvelous.
2: But Frank couldn't stop pursuing his passion.
3: Several months after the Christmas incident, a musician friend of mine told me there was a joint called A Rustic Cabin, and they were forming a new band, and they were looking for a boy singer. I went up and auditioned in Englewood Cliffs up near the George Washington Bridge. Got the job at the Rustic Cabin. Shortly after that, we got word that the WNEW dance parade was going to pick up the Rustic Cabin every night of the week, 11 to 11.15 or 11.15 to 11.30, whatever it was.
2: Frank earned a measly $15 a week at the Rustic Cabin, but his father began to see the fruits of his son's passion.
3: Suddenly, uh, my dad he became the proudest man in the world. You know, he he couldn't wait to tell anybody, everybody or anybody that I was on a 15-minute dance remote program from New Jersey in some roadhouse somewhere, you know. And they'd all sit around the radio and listen at 11 o'clock at night for 15 minutes. And in those days, I couldn't sing my way out of a paper bag, but they thought it was a big star, you know. Anybody got on the radio in the early days of radio was a very big
2: star. You bet. Well, Sinatra never formally learned how to read music, He had a fine, natural understanding of it. And he worked very hard from a young age to improve his abilities in all aspects of music, even while he was earning some success. On his night off, Frank would take his girlfriend Nancy out on dates. Actually, it wasn't technically a date. It was a business. Frank would use his one night off to see people in the music business. Here's Frank on one of those nights that yielded a huge payoff.
3: That's when I ran into uh, one of the men in the music business said to me, uh, listen, he said, why don't you take some lessons? And I said, what kind of lessons? He said, vocal lessons. He said, you know, guys do that. I said, well, uh, where do you find these guys? He said, there's a guy up over the brass rail, which he said, the restaurant. He said, his name is Quinlan. He said, he's an old drunk. He said, he used to be at the Met and he got kicked out of the Met. And he said, you ought to go up and talk to him. So I went up and he was surly. I think he was hungover anyway, he said that who are you and how long have you been singing and uh, why do you want to be a singer and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, I'd like like to be a singer because I feel that uh, I have an idea about singing. Oh, he said, you already got an idea. He said, why do do you need me? I said, no, what I mean is I just need some direction. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If you can handle $3 a week, he said, I'll give you three lessons a week. And I started three lessons a week. And I couldn't wait to get there every, every time I had a lesson. I couldn't wait because I knew that I was learning something. He was teaching me the proper way to sing. I still use the same exercises, and then I developed some of my own.
2: Thanks to those bedrock vocal lessons from that drunk John Quinlan, Frank's rocket began hearing a countdown.
3: Now I was on the air twice, once at night and one in the morning. And I got fan mail. And I'd get little postcards, two postcards, three postcards, and girls would write to me, you know, penny postcards. And I'd go and look in there right away and see if I how much mad did it get any bigger. It never got any bigger. People began to hear me. And they were saying, Jesus, you're getting better. You really, we see the difference So oh, what's no. happening. It was
2: 1939. Frank was 25. He just married Nancy, left the Rustic Cabin to play with the world-famous Tommy Dorsey band. Here's Joe Stafford, who was a backup singer in Dorsey's band. We were just
5: sitting on the
6: bandstand when Tommy announced this new singer out on the stage, walked this very skinny, unprepossessing looking young man, and I thought,
0: wow. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights
6: dreaming. He sang about eight bars. And that whole theater became so quiet. You could have heard a
2: pin drop. You just knew that you were hearing something. And on the back end of this, we're going to get into the the guts of Sinatra's career. The way he got under a song. The way he got under the skin of a song. This is Lee Habib again, Our American Stories. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. And catch all of our stories we'll be back right after this
0: what good would common sense for it do cause it's witchcraft wicked witchcraft and although Mississippi, here we all work while the rich folk play, pulling em boats from the dawn till sunset, getting no rest until the judgment day.
2: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Frank Sinatra singing the great Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, Old Man River from Showboat. When we picked off, we found out he had just gotten a gig with Tommy Dorsey, and Dorsey gave Frank one of the biggest platforms to stand on in the entire music business. But as multi-Grammy and Academy Award-winning songwriter extraordinaire Sammy Kahn and Frank himself disclose, it's this, that Dorsey gave Frank something even bigger than a gig, something that would shake Sinatra's iconic vocalizations. Tommy Dorsey had this incredible incredible breath control
6: without breathing I, guess.
3: I watched him and I could never see him breathe 16 bars at a time I wonder how he does that if you can visualize, a trombone player holds the mouthpiece. He was breathing in the corner of his mouth. And that was my theory. Do not break a phrase if you can do that. And keep the audience listening for the rest of the phrase.
2: Here's music critic John Lahr on Sinatra applying the breath control he learned from Dorsey. He would be able to sing four lines of that song. There was a seamlessness, a
7: smoothness, and not one person is looking at anybody else.
2: They are completely under the spell of Sinatra's story. Always will you,
0: my stardust melody, the memory of love's
2: refrain After this, Frank's career took off. Sinatra mania was in full effect. He signed with Columbia Records in 1943 and was one of the most recognized men in the country. Frank had his struggles, though. He divorced Nancy, got remarried in 1951 to actress, bombshell, Ava Gardner. But Shortly after his marriage to Ava, Frank's singing career began to stall. His marriage was failing, and his popularity it was crashing. Frank took to the bottle. Here's Sinatra himself recalling a, recalling a remorseful New York City night.
3: I became an out-and-out out drunk. I mean, I was bombed all the time. So God bless Tootsies. I never paid a damn for Tootsies.
0: Drink up, drink up, all you people.
3: So at 4 o'clock, of course, this night, he ain't Dago. He said, you better go home. Order. Now, he was on 52nd Street. I was staying at Jimmy's 57th Street. I walked out, and it was like 20 degrees.
0: Have fun.
3: So have I started walking, and I'm walking, walking. Suddenly, I don't know where the hell I am, because the booze really hit me. It really hit me like a sledgehammer. And the next thing I knew, there was a flashlight in my eye, and somebody was shaking. And the life's on. You're going to have to get out of here. Come on, get up. And the cop grabbed my arm, and then he looked at me. You You Sinatra?
2: cop was not the only one to witness Frank's drunken distress. Here's Frank's closest friend, Sammy Davis Jr. I
3: was in somebody's car in New York. We stopped our light and I saw him coming past the Capitol like this. Walking down the street, co out a hat and was alone. It was the first time I'd ever seen him alone. And nobody was stopping him and nobody was doing it. And nobody
2: cared.
8: And nobody cared.
2: Frank hit rock bottom. It was 1953, and a film about the attack on Pearl Harbor called From Here to Eternity was being cast, starring acting legends Burt Lancaster, Donna Reed, and Montgomery Clift. Frank lobbied hard for the part.
3: I spoke to uh, Harry Cohn, who was then the head of Columbia Pictures, and uh, I said, I'd like to play that. He said, well, he said, you've never done a dramatic role. You're a guy a sing and dance with Gene Kelly. And I said, but that's the kind of thing I think I can do.
2: Ironically, it was his rocky marriage to Ava that got him the part. Here Frank's daughter Tina Daughters Tina and Nancy Sinatra Jr. detail the phone call Ava made to the contentious president of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn.
4: Their marriage was not going swimmingly, but he had to get back on his feet, she knew that better than anybody. She placed the call to Harry and said, "You know who should play Maggio, don't you? That son of a husband of mine." <laughs> It's pretty funny, yeah.
2: (laughs) It worked. They tested Sinatra and he got the part. It was perfect for him. All he had to do was make the audience laugh and cry at the same time. A very hard task for the most seasoned actor, but a skill Frank had been successful with throughout his singing career. But this was acting, not singing. The execution was completely different. Like he had done in the past, Frank went looking for direction. He got it from the director of the picture, Fred Zinnemann. Here's Frank.
3: And one time in Honolulu with Freddie, I said, must be something missing in my script. It went from scene number 162 to 164. And he said, well, do something. You know, what would a drunk do at the bar? And I said, well, drunks do a lot of things at bars. Bars out of there, whiskey. Large whiskey. Excuse me. Hey, buddy. Sam. Hey, coming out, fellas, the Terry Gimbel's basement. Stand back there now. Here we go. Seven for daddy. Five deuce. E-seven.
2: Snake eyes.
3: <laughs> That's the story of my
1: life.
2: <laughs> Frank got paid a pathetic 8000 for eight weeks' worth of work. It didn't matter to him. He was as hungry as ever, and his passion showed up on the big screen.
3: I think what made people enjoy it and like it It was my inner love for doing it and wanting it and needing it so badly. On March 25th,
2: 1954, Frank was nominated for his role in From Here to Eternity with an Oscar. They opened the envelope and...
6: The winner is Frank Sinatra.
2: <laughs> Frank was back on top again. But what he did immediately after receiving his Oscar is far from the usual all-night celebrating. Here's Frank's daughter, Tina Sinatra.
4: I think that everybody was disappointed there wasn't some extended celebration. He wanted to be with himself. He said, I just went home, parked the car, and I walked.
2: I walked. Now, this is not terribly surprising. After all, Frank was the poet laureate of loneliness. His songs were haunted by it, and for all of his fame... Frank loved solitude. Frank and Ava soon divorced, and a few years later, he wed a young actress named Mia Farrow. He or she is offering a very unique look into the man, his persona, and his music.
4: The way I saw it, there was this person that was so, so shy. You can see it in pictures sometimes when you see him looking at me. We were both shy people. So there was this Frank, and then there was another version. In Las Vegas, these people who would show up, I didn't know them from anywhere else, and they came and they called women broads. They only related to each other, the men. They told jokes, and they drank, and they gambled. And I I did meet mafia people. If the evening went on late enough, he might just say, let's go to London. And he would call his pilot, and next thing we'd be in an airplane. I learned to bring my passport to dinner. Before he made a record, or before he opened in Las Vegas, he would stop smoking for six weeks. And he wouldn't drink, he wouldn't smoke. I remember him telling me that he would never sing um, songs that were popular at the time. What kind of fool am I? And he said, I would never sing that song. He said, because uh, I, ca- I can't sing what I can't feel.
2: I can't sing what I can't feel. That's part of the reason we were attracted to Frank, I think. His voice was always confiding something. He wasn't busy emoting. He was busy connecting. And this gives his voice its extraordinary sympathy and relatability. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we can come back more with Frank Sinatra.
3: Can we make one?
0: It was a very good year It was a very good year For small-town girls
2: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Light. And we're spending the hour on Frank Sinatra. We'd hide from the light And you're listening to him singing one of the great Capitol Recordings. It was a very good year.
0: When I was 17.
2: And unlike most of the singers we hear on the radio, Frank was confessing to us. And this always gave his voice extraordinary sympathy and relatability. He sounds the way you would sound if you could speak the things you feel. If you dared to. on January 24, 1969, Frank lost his father. Like many Americans, Frank had been silently strong through the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and then Martin Luther King. When his father died, something in Sinatra snapped. Here he is sharing a story about his father who struggled to share how proud he really was of his son while literally behind closed doors, his father was beaming with pride. For his son.
3: My father loved me, if possible, more than my mother, but he never showed. He never wanted to, to open up with me. He was a terrible introvert. For instance, I went to the firehouse when I appeared at the Paramount. I said, my dad around, he said, uh, we think he's upstairs. will I came up, he was standing in front of the door of the locker. Shaving.
0: Some speed, follow my
3: lead. As I approached him, he apparently oh, saw me and slammed the door. But I had already seen in the mirror. This thing was full of clippings that he had been saving. Or had guys cut out a magnifying five and cut them out of magazines and save them for him. Downbeat and metronome and newspaper clippings.
0: Won't you tell her please to put on? I could have wept when I saw it follow my lead oh. he loved
3: my success but he but he never mentioned it he we never talk about it. in
2: 1978 frank turned one more song into a standard with new york new york sinatra actually had two hits called new york new york the first was in 1949 from the film on the town and was written by leonard bernstein 30 years later Sinatra cut the theme for Martin Scorsese's 1977 theatrical bomb, New York, New York, but Sinatra turned it into his signature song and his onstage closer. He also angered the lyricist by customizing the words, adding the climactic phrase, A number one. Here it is.
0: I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps.
2: You almost can't cut it there, can you? (laughs) Here's culture critic Terry Teachout on the significance of this song. What is touching about it is this is a man who in his youth looked across the river and saw his dreams. And now, in his late middle age, in his old age, he sings a song about having achieved those dreams. Radio host Jonathan Schwartz was at Radio City Music Hall for Sinatra's first public performance of New York, New York, here's what he saw. I was present at the very first moment that he sang it publicly. It was during the Yankee Dodger World Series of 78, and he was playing Radio City, opening night. He turns to the conductor and says, what's the first line? He said, start spreading the news.
0: Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York.
2: Frank had successfully arrived at Oz. And Oz, of course, being that big city right across the river, right across the Hudson River, New York City. And what got him there, in the end, it's that ability to get under the skin of a lyric and to relate To the ordinary everyday American And particularly to the lost To the lonely And to the loser Here's an intro to the great Hoagy Carmichael song I Get Along Without You Very Well I think it says it all
3: We shall call this next segment Songs for Losers These are songs of unrequited love girls running away from home and all that kind of jazz.
0: I get along without you
2: very well. And when Frank got to Oz, what he saw behind the curtain, well, we do not know. One thing seems apparent. Frank found meaning, pleasure, and deep satisfaction by touching those who listened to his music. In a 1963 Playboy interview, Frank said this, quote, Whatever else has been said about me personally is unimportant. When I sing, I believe. I'm honest. If you want to get an audience with you, there's only one way. You have to reach out to them with total honesty and humility. This isn't a grandstand play on my part. I've discovered, and you can see it in other entertainers. When they don't reach out to the audience, nothing happens. You can be the most artistically perfect performer in the world, but an audience is like a woman. If you're indifferent, endsville. That goes for any kind of human contact. A politician, on television, an actor in the movies, or a guy and a gal. That's as true in life as it is in art. Well, we're going to close out with the group's favorite here at Our American Stories. The one that we think represents and manifests what we just read so well. The great Harold Orlin and Johnny Mercer song, One for My Baby and One More for the Road.
0: To the end Of a brief episode Make it one For my babe And one more For the road I got the routine Put another nickel in the machine. Feeling so bad. Can't you make the music easy and sad? I could tell you a lot. But you've got to be true to your code. Just make it one for my baby, and one more for the road. You'd never know it, but Buddy, I'm a kind of poet
2: And I got a lot of things
0: I'd like to say
2: Frank Sinatra's favorite toast was May you live to be a hundred and, and may I the last me, voice you hear be mine He didn't make it to a hundred But the business of Frank Sinatra is still going strong All you need to do is listen His voice is still heard in restaurants, bars, airports and other public spaces all over the world. Frank has solidified, as recordings continue to prove nearly two decades after his death at 82, that he is one of the most recognizable voices in history. It was, after all, why they called him The Voice. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Francis Albert Sinatra.
0: But this torch That I found It's gotta be drowned Or it soon Might explode So make it one For my baby And one more For the road The long It's so long the long
1: very
2: habib and this is our american stories and we love the culture we love film and television and music and one of our favorite tv shows along with shark tank is judge judy you are about to enter the courtroom
3: of judge judith Scheinlin. the people are real the
2: cases are real the rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And <laughs> this case, well, we love taking the best ones of the week because you have jobs and you're not home more than likely when say airs. But this one involved, well, a deadbeat, dead, and your credit card. All parties in the matter of Stang versus DeJana. Step forward, please. Bonnie Stang is suing her
3: ex-boyfriend, Thomas DeJana, for credit card charges in excess of
2: $11,000. Ouch. Oh, man, here's Judge Judy unpacking the case.
6: Ms. Tang, it is your claim that Mr. Tijana owes you some money. Yes. He owes you some money because he used your credit card. Yes. You were given him permission to use your credit card with the understanding that he was going to take care of the bills from the credit card and use it only for emergencies. Mr. Jajana racked up thousands of dollars of expenses on the credit card, and you want that Money back. Yes, sir. In addition, he owes you some money for rent because he rented a condo of yours. All of that is well in excess of this court's limit of $5,000. So we'll get into the rent if only if we have to. Let's deal with the credit card. Okay?
2: Okay. okay. Boy, poor Mr. Dejana, it's coming. But what's his side of the story?
6: Where and when did you meet Miss Stang?
9: I met Miss Stang on an internet dating site.
6: So you were looking for a date?
9: I was looking for some companionship. Yes, ma'am.
6: How old are you? 38. Ever been married? Yes, I have. How many times? Once. Do you have children?
9: Yes, I do, Your Honor. How many? One.
6: How old?
9: She's a nine year old daughter.
6: And in what state does she live? New York. And where do you live?
9: On San Diego.
6: You live very far away from your child? Yes, I do. How come?
9: Um, during... um is not an answer. Excuse me?
6: Um is not an answer. <laughs>
9: my my uh, apologies, Your Honor.
6: How often do you see your daughter?
9: Uh, three or
2: four times a year.
6: You pay child support, Mr. Tuchana? Yes, I do. How much?
2: Uh, $500 a month. Boy, she doesn't like him already. Um is not an answer. And it's not. Judge Judy moves in on the story behind the story of those credit card expenses.
6: Now, Mr. DeJana. When did Miss Stang give you a credit card?
9: Just before I went to New York for Christmas.
6: And what did you tell her when she gave you the credit card?
9: I told her, thank you very much for helping me out in this time of my need.
6: Why were you in need, sir?
9: I went on disability October 26th.
6: What is the nature of your disability?
9: I had had a torn up shoulder. From what? Playing baseball.
6: What kind of work were you doing?
2: I'm an industrial
9: electrician.
6: Okay.
2: Okay, okay. She presses him on this so-called disability
6: now I want you to tell me, Mr. Jajana, because it was something was very interesting to me. You couldn't work because of a torn shoulder?
9: I have no mobility above 180 degrees.
6: Aren't there other jobs that you could find, sir, that would permit you to work and not lift your arms up all the way up here? I'm
9: an industrial electrician, and that entails a lot of heavy lifting above my head, screwing in pipes, No, 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 listen wires. to what I said, listen
6: to what I said uh, Mr. DeJana. Ma'am, I'm DeGener. a trained electrician,
9: that's what when, I do. Listen
6: to what I said to you, sir. When you have a nine-year-old child, yes. you pick up cans. You don't have to lift anything above your head in order to pay your child oh, support. I understand that. I'm glad you understand that. I just want you to understand that I know where we're coming from. But also- now, what were you doing skiing in Utah?
2: And <laughs> <laughs> this is why this is still the best-rated television show during the day and why Judge Judy is the highest-paid lady and man in all of television. Why were you skiing in Utah? <laughs> Well, Where did that come from? Okay, so he was skiing in Utah. Let's follow Judge Judy down this slope. I wasn't
9: skiing, ma'am. I drove my friends there in my
2: truck. And
9: along you drove with them here my your trailer. friends
6: in your truck? Yes, ma'am. To Utah.
9: So. The plan all along was for me to drive there with several of the individuals going on the trip and to haul all of the ski equipment and other snow equipment in my trailer yeah. so that people didn't have to deal with it. Get a airport. job
6: driving a cab! <laughs> if you can drive cross-country for a ski vacation, sir, and haul all their skis... Get behind the wheel of a cab and drive a taxi, drive a limousine service. That's
9: not my choice drive... of occupation.
6: Oh, well, I want to tell you something, I want to tell you something. I don't mean you to want be, a be I'm i Hey, I'm speaking, you're not. You want to be a bum on your own time, that's fine. You have a nine-year-old child, forget her. You have a nine-year-old child, I wouldn't give you one iota. Of relief from your back child support not one and I know the judges in New York City sir that's my hometown and they're not going to do it either they're not going to give you one break especially after I send them this tape
2: you bet and by the way this is what really ticks Americans off guys like this really really freeloaders like this just stealing our money because he doesn't want to do a certain kind of job but the one kind of job that he can no longer do ridiculous Judge Judy now turned to that girlfriend. Because boy, something tells me she's going to come down on her too for giving this bum her credit card.
6: Now, how much does he owe you on the credit card? $11,000. Can I see some of the purchases that he made, please? Which happened
4: over six weeks, most of which were cash withdrawals. Listen, how old are you? Too old for this, 44 years old. Let me tell you something. Yes, ma'am. I could
6: tell that he was a bum in five minutes how does it take you six weeks to figure out that this guy hasn't been able to get his life straight
4: I have faith in mankind which has now been no, destroyed no you cannot have
6: faith in mankind you bro- your head
4: wasn't ruling you thank you you're right your honor you're absolutely right he played on I mean securities. I don't even
6: see what his attraction is he doesn't have any different I- if you, you know, your honor he looked like Tom Cruise Myhi. <laughs> <A shift>. Judge <laughs> him for the plaintiff in the amount of 5,000 dollars. get
2: him out of here. Get him out of oh, here. You may step out.: I agree. get him off this air. And by the way, we know guys like this, one of the things we're going to do on this show starting in the fall is we're going to start to look into some of these disability scams, because guys like this have no right to take money from us. He could be a telephone operator, he could drive a cab. There is a hundred other jobs he can do. I'm trained to be an electrician. that's all I can do. What a load of nonsense. A load of nonsense, get another job
6: Now what were you doing skiing in Utah?
2: Well said, Judge Judy And he never really gave I mean, he's making it seem like he drove all those people out there And didn't ski himself I say you go on his Facebook page Something tells me there'll be pictures of him Sliding down a slope in Utah What a jerk This is Lee Habib This is Our American Stories This is why we love Judge Judy And we bring it to you Because sometimes you can't make it more after these messages.
0: Yes. It's a sense. What you need to say. it? I'm a really smart lady. Sometimes I write a little song so you don't forget it. Sometimes I write a little song to remember the lyrics. I go. Why don't you pay attention? Well, that's a quote to my.
2: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell you stories about everything in life here. Arts, culture, history, and, you know, sometimes we see things in the Wall Street Journal. I consider it America's paper. It's so good. It's not just about Wall Street. It's about everything. Pick it up if you ever get a chance. And there was a piece called Mineral Rights Can Make You Rich. It was written by Merrill Matthews, who's a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation in Dallas. Merrill, thanks for joining us.
8: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Meryl, you know, talk to people about this thing called the shale explosion and the explosion of energy. You know, people are looking right now at $2 a gallon gas throughout most of the country, $215. It was at four and four fifteen. So before we even get to the royalties, let's talk about this innovation in this area called energy and why we're all getting this gigantic break in prices and pricing that helps every American family. Tell that story.
8: Back in the early 70s, we were reaching a thing that they called peak oil. And by that, they meant that we all the easy oil to extract from the ground in the U.S. had sort of been reached, and we were going to be declining from that point on. And there, was some, there appeared to be some truth to that. I mean, our, our oil and gas production had declined through the late 70s, early 80s uh... into the nineties but in the uh... over the last fifteen years or so the uh... energy industry moved to what we call fracking uh... hydraulic fracturing where they're able to go in and break up uh, certain types of shale formations and extract more natural gas and uh... crude oil than they had been able to do in the past that has led to an explosion of natural gas and crude oil production in the u.s to the point where we're uh, the, the idea of peak oil or peak gas is way past us. We're, we've become a net uh, natural gas exporter because we're producing so much and we're on our way to becoming a net uh, crude oil producer in the next, oh, five, maybe ten years or so. So it has dramatically increased the production of crude oil, and natural gas, that has lowered the prices, stabilized the market so that in years past, I mean, people, if we had, if we had, if the Middle East sneezed, uh, gasoline prices went up to $4 a gallon, now you have turmoil in the Middle East and prices are still low in large part because we're able to produce so much in the U.S.
2: And that's such a great point. We're not only getting our gas cheaper, but we're safer. And we're not as dependent on uh, enemies, sometimes enemies of this country who are are making oil. And talk about the fact that what we've done is make us almost not quite there yet, uh, Merrill, but possibly energy independent.
8: Well, that, that's right. If you go back to the 70s and the long gas lines, Congress said we need to try to reach energy independence. There wasn't much expectation you'd be able to do that with fossil fuels. So they said, well, let's go to ethanol uh, and try to increase our energy co- uh, ability there without using fossil fuels. Let's look more at subsidizing wind energy, uh, solar power, and so forth. So we've been doing that now for decades uh, and the, the, that whole calculus now has changed and that, uh, we're, we're coming close to being energy independent. In fact, I would argue if you add in, uh, Canada and Mexico, which was part of the, the, uh, NAFTA, the North American Trade Agreement, when you put their, uh, their quantities in, we are, really are at energy independence. So that has made us more secure. We're not dependent upon Foreign uh, countries, and a lot of those countries don't like us very much, especially Venezuela, Russia, uh, and some of those countries. They are they are largely enemies, and they use energy policy as a sort of hammer to try to force other countries that are dependent upon their energy to uh, to toe their policy line. What's happened now is some of these other countries, especially with natural gas, are beginning to say, "If you don't want to go along with if we if we don't if, if you don't." work with us, Russia. We'll go and buy U.S. natural gas, and that will give us some other options that we don't have to follow with what Russia's doing.
2: And that's so good for all of us in the world. And again, it's innovators who did this, guys like Harold Hamm and the Bakken Shale. These are people who said, I'm going to take a chance here. I'm going to try something. By the way, the technology had been around quite a while to frack, but it took people to invest to take the risk. And Merrill, my goodness, the risk has reaped tremendous rewards for the American people.
8: That's right. Fracking's been around for a long time. The horizontal drilling is, I think, a newer innovation that they've been able to uh, to come up with. But they found ways to uh, use that. They've gone back to old wells that they felt like where well, there's no more production coming out of that. Now, using the fracking, they're being able to, they're able to get out more. So it has become, and this is all a private sector deal, and it's almost entirely a U.S. deal. Europe has not moved to fracking. A few countries are out there are. are interested in it, maybe touching, uh, dipping their toe in the water. But this has almost been entirely a U.S. innovation.
2: Well, let's get to your column now on the mineral rights, because this is just so interesting. The federal government receives billions, you tell us, in royalties. And that's uh, uh, one way of creating revenue for the federal government, which means less taxes in the end for so many of us to pay. Talk about what a royalty actually is, Merrill for our listeners and how that works. How why is the federal government getting so much money in royalties?
8: You know, you've got federal land, you've got state land, and you've got privately owned land. And when uh, when drillers go in and drill for oil or natural gas, they pay royalties for that. The federal government has its its land that it uh, it uh, uh, releases out. It got in uh, 2016 about 3.9 billion dollars in royalties. From oil and natural gas, that was actually down, but that was because the energy prices were down. Yep. Uh, but states do that as well, and the private sector. And in uh, interestingly, over the past eight to ten years, the uh, the energy industry has typically wanted to either go to states or to uh, private land because it was so much easier to get things approved. The Obama administration simply wa- uh, slow walked these things; uh, just didn't. Approved the things very quickly, so it was more hassle, even though the royalties were often lower for federal lands than they were in private estate lands uh, the the hassle of going through the uh, federal government was so much more difficult that they said, we'll just pay the higher royalties and go to private lands and get this thing done quickly. So, But that's beginning to change now with the Trump administration. They're improving, they're uh, uh, accelerating the approval of these processes. So I think we're going to see even more drilling on federal lands and, and offshore in the near future.
2: Well, good, and this is how the government can get more money in its pockets. And again, relieving the burden on U.S. taxpayers. And we don't do a lot of public policy on this show, but this is uh, public policy that matters to you, the listeners. Uh, let's talk about the benefits to the private landowners. Let's talk in particular about a couple of counties in Pennsylvania and the landowners there. Uh, talk about royalties to private landowners.
8: Right. Uh, Cabot Oil and Gas, which uh, specialize in those areas, it released a, uh, a report here oh, about oh, several months ago in which they were looking at the amount of royalties they paid uh and they said they had dished out a 1 billion dollars in royalties and uh, 500 million in signing bonus- bonuses Just in the Pennsylvania and and Pennsylvania counties and Wyoming counties, so uh, it was a small area of it, but they had been paying a lot. And I, as I mentioned in the piece, I actually am a royalty owner myself. Not something I did. My grandfather went out and uh, had some land back in the uh, '40s in East Texas, and he sold it, but he kept the mineral rights, and nobody in the family knew. And so I got contacted by a land agent uh, 10, 12 years ago who said, you know, are you the son? Are you the son? And so you've got some uh, royalties coming to you. It's never amounted to very much, but I'm thrilled that I'm able to be able to say I'm now now in the oil and gas industry.
2: That's right. And by the way, people get all different varying amounts of money in these royalty agreements, some enough to really retire, others to get wealthy, and some to just, as you put in the piece— have a nicely paid dinner from the company um, that 's leasing the land from you because you have the mineral rights, and you can take your family to dinner now and then, but either way it 's a gigantic uh, windfall for american for American landowners
8: I actually have an economic incentive to see those natural gas prices higher than they are right now because i 'll only get a check for fifty sixty seventy dollars every three or four months, uh, so it 's not much, but uh, the, the and but then that that again is a benefit with the expanded drilling and so forth, the prices have fallen dramatically, making it much more efficient. And and when you talk about uh, the the environment, uh, natural gas burns about uh, half the releases uh, about half the carbon emissions as coal does. Natural gas has become so abundant and so cheap that the power plants out there, the electricity generators, have been moving to natural gas just as a from a market incentive because it's more affordable and it's more accessible now.
2: And it's proof that the markets can do things the government. government Government can't, the markets can innovate in ways government can't, and my goodness, the benefit, Merrill, to particularly retirees and people with less means as it relates to their electric bills because of natural gas, the savings to the American public, I just love to know what it is, but it's got to be in the hundreds of billions, I would think.
8: it's it's huge. And and the irony here, the great irony here is President Trump has taken a lot of grief for pulling out of the Paris climate agreement, where they're setting these rules about the carbon emissions and so forth. We're actually, the U.S. has actually been meeting those agreements just by the fact from the natural process of moving over to natural gas in the, uh, in the electricity generation. Uh, we're not even part of the agreement, and we're doing a better job than most of the countries that signed on to this and are scolding us for not being part of it.
2: And that's the story you're not hearing anywhere else, folks. Merrill Matthews, the story is mineral rights can make you rich in the Wall Street Journal. Google it. And Merrill is a resident scholar with the Institute for Policy Innovation in Dallas. Merrill Matthews' story and mineral rights owners around his country's story here on Our American Stories. This is our American Stories, and what we're about to listen to is a piece done by Reason TV entitled "Red, White, and Sacrebleu." It's written and hosted by Ted Balaker. Sacrebleu. The story chronicles how the American free market spurned competition in the wine world. America, which was once known for having the type of wine that goes good with a hamburger, ended up, to the amazement of the world and especially the French, surpass- surpassing all of their competition. Let's take a listen. France has long
10: ruled the world of wine. Sure, since at least the mid-20th century, the U.S. has tried to match the sophistication of French wines. But it's been a tough sell.
6: Say hello to
3: Gallo, hello to Gallo wine.
10: When wine elves failed to convey sophistication, American winemakers turned to classy British actors. I
11: like the unusual flavor of
10: Thunderbird wine. If you don't recognize the Thunderbird label, it's because the bottle is usually covered with a brown paper bag.
3: This champagne doesn't come from France.
10: Even the legendary Orson Welles couldn't close the gap with the French. Take
0: two.
10: Ah, the French. These boozy outtakes confirmed that Yankee wines were good for just one thing. Ah, the French. Getting blitzed.
1: Get rippled.
10: American wines deserve to be paired with food of equal sophistication, says French wine expert Jean-Noel Formeau. Something like the hamburger.
5: Because the hamburger It's not a sophisticated dish in the sense of cooking.
10: It's greasy, it's messy. Hamburger Nation could never make wine like France, so it must have sounded like a cruel joke when, in 1976, a one-of-its-kind competition was arranged.
5: There was a tasting in Paris that uh, French wines compared to California wines.
10: Mighty France versus lowly California in a blind taste test judged entirely by French wine connoisseurs. They would sample some of the best wine from each location and vote for their favorite red and their favorite white. Formos says the French were confident, even arrogant. (laughs) It's going to be so easy. Only it wasn't so easy. The impossible happened. Hamburger Nation won top honors for both red and white. And France took a a slap in the face.
11: I was uh, feeling like I was born again.
10: Mike Gergich made the winning white. It was displayed at the Smithsonian, and his story was told in a popular book. The Paris tasting made him a legend, but back then even Gergich couldn't believe he had won. I said, are you sure it's me? (laughs) How could this American, an immigrant who fled communist Yugoslavia, shock the world? Yes, California's natural gifts and his own talent were essential, but so was something else the freedom to create wine his own way different when I came from communism or was not freedom <laughs> I have
11: used American opportunity
10: Gergic was raised in a small village in Croatia he developed a taste for wine at a very young age to be honest my
11: mama switched me from breast milk at the age of two and a half to wine
10: and I like when Gurgits arrived in California, he was nearly penniless, but he knew he was in the right place.
11: I already felt that there is a kind of a vibration in the air that
4: people are trying to compete.
10: One of the great Things that we do in America, and you hope it doesn't go away, is we have this great sense of adventure. Squire Friedel owns Sonoma County's Glen lion Winery. He says California's history of freewheeling winemaking helped revolutionize the craft. We have a great sense of let's try something new, let's try something different. It's different in France, he says, where the government exerts control over many aspects of winemaking. They even have tasters that come out uh, from the government. Formeau was an official taster for the French government. Not a bad gig.
5: I go to different chateaus and I taste, and the wine passes or doesn't pass.
10: He says the rich tradition that has produced such revered wine also has a downside. The beauty of
5: France is we have a lot of traditions. The problem of France, we have so many, we cannot do anything.
10: That's just that you try Thunderbird. It's really delightful. California progressed from Thunderbird to Gurgic's award-winning wine in just a couple of decades. The centuries-old chasm between French and American winemakers was closing quickly.
5: The French were interested to understand what was going on in California.
10: Hamburger Nation could teach the French something about wine? How fun for Friedel to ponder given what he used to do for a living. I was the Ronald McDonald, the second one. That was wonderful. The day I signed the contract is the day that we put the house on the market. Acting in commercials gave Friedel the financial security to start his own winery. And he remembers how important the Paris tasting was for the young California industry. That course put us on the map. Uh, where no one could make fun of us anymore as the younger brother. Uh, but I think it was the 80s where everything started to get ramp up very quickly. We all started to get it. Up
5: to 1980, America has never been the land of uh, great food or great wine. So in 1980, Formo headed west. My job was
10: to uh, come to California for six months and it's people who say to spy. So what did the wine spy find in California? an atmosphere of innovation.
5: And because of that, America has been able to create anything that have changed, really, the way wine is made today.
10: Innovations like stainless steel tanks or malolactic fermentation, and process Gergich helped develop, which counteracts tartness in wine.
5: It's extremely difficult in France, compared to here, that you are always tied in some rules that are either government rules or quote-unquote family rules,
10: not having the rules and regulations that they have in much of Europe, and particularly in France, were able to experiment. Friedel recalls his first experiments. First wines just sucked. They were not very good at all, but you learn. First he planted Cabernet grapes, but eventually he discovered the climate was a tad too cool for them. He switched to Syrah, and since then his Syrah has been served in some of America's finest restaurants. What if he tried this grape switcheroo in France? You can't do it. You just can't. In France, it'd be illegal for Friedel to switch to Syrah, Pinot Noir, or any other unapproved grape. If I want to grow Pinot Noir, I want to be able to grow Pinot Noir. Too bad. The French government decides which grapes may be planted where. The government regulates everything from alcohol content to pruning methods. The result? It's harder for French winemakers to innovate. The French wine industry is uh, floundering. France still exports more wine. But look at how American exports have grown since the 1976 tasting. The U.S. and other New World winemakers are gaining market share and challenging French dominance.
5: I think France has been lost a little bit for a while.
10: Formeau grew weary of French rules and traditions.
5: I don't like that weight of tradition, but on the top of that, they don't like people like me who come with new ideas. It doesn't go with the establishment.
10: What was supposed to be a six-month reconnaissance mission has turned into nearly 30 years in a new land. Formeau quit his job as an official taster for the French government, and as co-founder of Chateau Potel, he's now a celebrated wine entrepreneur in California
5: here I felt free and I could be successful and that's why I've been doing here what I have couldn't have done in France.
10: But don't forget about France. Formos says global competition has forced French winemakers to step up their game and that means better wine for all of us.
2: This is Our American Stories and we thank Reason TV for that piece. Go to Reason.com and the piece was called Red, White and Sacra And by the way we love Sacre telling... Sacra Bleu. Sacre bleu. And we love telling stories about, well, innovation, competition, and free enterprise. And just what freedom does. And the country that produces the great hamburger also does produce great wine. That's right. And that's Jesse. He can't help himself. This is Our American Stories. And listen to all that we do by going to ouramericannetwork.org. Our Dodd-Frank series, Where Have You Gone, George Bailey, is terrific on this same kind of subject. Also, the work we've done with hair braiding and credentialing where the government's coming in and micromanaging our lives. Look what it's done to French wines, and look what it's doing for American wines not having that level of intervention. Again, this is Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you stories about everything and all walks of American life. And this story is the story of a comedian, and we've told a few before. Stephen Wright is most famous for his slow, deadpan one-liners. Born and raised in Massachusetts, he cites comic George Carlin as his main influence. His 1985 comedy album, I Have a Pony, was recorded at Wolfgang in San Francisco and Park West in Chicago.
7: Thanks. I used to be a parking attendant in Boston at Logan Airport. I parked jets. They let me go, though, because I kept locking the keys in them. One day, I was on an 86-foot stepladder trying to get in the window with a coat hanger. (laughs) I was arrested today for scalping low numbers at the deli. (laughs) Sold a number three for 28 bucks. I was once walking through the forest alone and a tree fell right in front of me and I didn't hear it. I used to be a narrator for Bad Mimes. I live in a house that's on the median strip of a highway. Very nice grassy area, I like it. The only thing I don't like about it is when I leave my driveway, I have to be going 60 miles an hour. I have a microwave fireplace. I can lay down in front of the fire for the evening in 8 minutes. can't have everything where would you put it sometimes you can't hear me it's because sometimes I'm in parentheses are there any questions years ago I was... no, it was yesterday. (laughs) I went to the hardware store, I bought some used paint. It was in the shape of a house. I also bought some batteries but they weren't included. buy them again (laughs) i had trouble going home from there because i had parked my car in a tow-away zone when i came back the entire area was gone (laughs) one time the police stopped me for speeding and they said don't you know the speed limit is 55 miles an hour i said yeah i know but i wasn't going to be out there
2: Before we get back to this legendary comedy routine, let's hear from Stephen about his writing style.
11: The audience doesn't care about style or anything. They just care whether it's funny because I was, you know, I, I had more normalish material. 80% of it was like what I'm known now. But even within that, they would, if they would laugh at some of it and wouldn't laugh at other things. So they, it wasn't how I was doing it. It was this actual piece of material. And I, I just thought abstractly. That's just how I wrote. I didn't think, a, a plan planet. I mean, that that type of material was just funny to me. I didn't think about how I talked. I didn't think about how I looked. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was material. So then when I went on stage, I was scared because Public speaking, I was so nervous and I had an extra blank face because I was afraid. And I was trying to say the joke the right way and trying to think of what was the next joke. It's very serious to communicate stuff to the audience. And then that just like went together, kind of meshed like just by accident.
2: Wright knew from a young age that he wanted to be a stand up comedian when he would often dream about performing on The Tonight Show. With Johnny Carson.
11: Well, I started watching. It was like 14 years old. And I was watching it every night, and my fantasy became to, to go on that. When I was like 17, it was like that would be, you know, how a kid wants to be a baseball player or an astronaut or something. I wanted to. That was my dream, not knowing that it would ever happen or anything. So then, in the club and stuff, and a guy from The Tonight Show saw me in Cambridge, Peter Sally. I was doing it three years, and he saw me in the club, and then three weeks later I was on the show. So I'm 26, and I'm there. It was ex- totally surrealistic. He was really nice. He talked to me before I went on. He was very, you know, I, he could have been saying, we're going to ask smear to you, and we're going to put your body in different states after the show. And I would have said, yes, that's, that's fine. That's fantastic. And so... You know, that's still the highlight of my entire career. I've done other stuff after that, but that's my favorite thing ever.
2: Now let's go back to Stephen Wright's first comedy album, I Have a Pony.
7: I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity. (laughs) I said, Your Honor, why would anyone in their right mind park in the passing lane? (laughs) I asked him if he knew what time it is and he told me and I said no for questions. <laughs> I'm going to court next week. I've been selected for jury duty. <laughs> it's kind of an insane case. Six thousand ants dressed up as rice and robbed a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> I don't think they did it. I know a few of them and they wouldn't do anything like that. Years ago I worked in a natural organic health food store in Seattle, Washington. One day a man walked in and he said, If I melt dry ice, can I swim without getting wet? I was fired for eating cotton candy and drinking straight Bosco on the (laughs) job. So I figured I'd leave the area, because I had no ties there anyway, except for this girl I was seeing. We had conflicting attitudes. I really wasn't into meditation. She really wasn't into being alive. I told her I knew when I was going to die, because my birth certificate has an expiration date on it. I had the photograph on my license taken out of focus on purpose. So when the police do stop me, they go, Here, you can go. when I stayed up all night playing poker with Tara Kearns. I got a full house and four people died. I have a telescope on the peephole on my door so I can see who's at the door for 200 miles. Who is it? Who's it gonna be when you get here? I got an answering machine for my phone now, and I'm not home, and someone calls me up. They hear a recording of a busy signal. (laughs) I broke a mirror in my house. I'm supposed to get seven years' bad luck, but my lawyer thinks he can get me five. (laughs) I like to skate on the other side of the ice. I like to reminisce with people I don't know. Granted, it takes longer. I like to fill my tub up with water, then turn the shower on and act like I'm in a submarine that's been hit. Hey, when my foot falls asleep during the day because that means it's going to be up all night.
2: <laughs> and that's the work of Stephen Wright. We celebrate his work, his life here on Our American Stories. We've all also done the same for Steve Martin, Don Rickles, Cal Burnett, Lucille Ball, Mitch Hedberg, and Joan Rivers. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to what we did with all of them. You'll hear some of their routines. You'll hear from them personally about how they do what they do. Stephen Wright, his material, his story, here on Our American Stories.